and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. This is episode 62. Devin joins me today from Chicago to talk about all kinds of stuff. But first, Devin, it's been a little while. What have you been up to, man? Oh, my goodness. Uh, lots of shooting. Um, uh, starting work at a new uh, broadcast station uh, that specializes in internet content. Um, and um, I, I don't know. It's uh, been mostly just been uh, learning learning more about uh, broadcast workflow, bro- broadcast engineering, and all that kind of stuff, uh, along with, of course, you know, the, the mountain of editing that I always have in front of me somehow that I could never get ahead of. Egads, you're going to lock yourself at the studio in one of those dark, scary rooms with a bunch of Macs around you, editing continuously as footage comes in through the only light source in your room? Mm-hmm. I'm going to get, I'm gonna get like a permanent blue tan from all the monitors. It's going to be crazy. Ugh. On my end, guys, you probably heard last episode, but uh, came back from the festivals, great times, sold a crap load of feature-length films, discussed that in depth with Mitch last episode, but uh, really fun, still getting comments and uh, reviews on our feature-length films, so thanks for buying those if you bought one, and thanks for saying hello and coming to the booth, that was grand of you. Now, on that note, I think it is time for the news. Time for the news. First thing we got on the list here, and this is actually something I am fairly excited about. I think Devin is too, in fact. Uh, hard mm-hmm. drives are not always the thing that we <laughs> jump up and down about, but man, have solid state drives really come a long way in the last couple of years. Right now, Samsung has announced the new 950 Pro. This guy is faster than the previously released Intel 750 series. If you're not familiar with those, go check them out. They come in a 4. 400 gig, 800 gig, and I believe a 1.2 terabyte flavor. These guys from Samsung are going to be cheaper, a little bit faster. We're talking 2.5 gig reads and 1.5 gig writes. And the price is really compelling here. We're talking about $350 for a 512 gig model and $200 for the 256 gig model. These are fast. They are fairly large capacity and they're M.2 form factor. Now, Devin, what do you think? Is that kind of in your wheelhouse for a price it's it is mind-blowing yeah i know even though that that's you know you can get a 250 these days for maybe uh 80 bucks or 100 bucks depending on how much performance you want out of it uh i think that 200 bucks is completely reasonable for these kind of speeds it's absolutely ridiculous and i wouldn't be surprised if in one way or another these are somewhat artificially inflated prices just to get some of that older stock still going out the door uh, because yeah, five thirty for a five twelve—that's a great price. You can stick both of those together, do a RAID zero, and have speeds that you know no computer could ever touch uh, for you know less than you know seven hundred dollars. So uh, it's definitely one of those that I'm looking into. I can't wait till they actually start putting these though in like um, uh, SSDs uh, as that uh, what's it two point five millimeter form factor, whatever the laptop size drives. Because uh, I use a ton of those. I spit those in and out of my computer all the time for editing different projects and all kinds of stuff. So uh, while the you know the M.2, is it called, uh, standard, is great for your laptops and like DJ's laptop of having multiple hard drives for caching and all that kind of stuff, uh, I can't wait till I can purchase this in kind of a more standard configuration or I guess a larger configuration so I can use it on my own computer. Well, there's a little bit of a problem there because... 
SATA is the limiting factor for an SSD like this. If you have it in SATA form factor, you're going to be sure. like bottlenecked basically to about, what, 600, maybe 700 megs at the max? I would say probably closer to 600 would be a fair Probably estimate. closer to 600, yeah. Yeah, so with something like this, the amount of, of speed, and it, it's just it's but crazy. You how do you, how you, do you hook that buy- up? No, no, but you can't buy SSDs right now that'll hit that limit. And I feel like with these coming out at this size, they're going to start coming out with SSDs that just perform right at 6 gigabit. And chances are be a little bit cheaper because they don't need to have the high-end performance. If it makes sense, like slightly over-engineering the drive speed so that you can maximize the throughput on the channel. Come on, this is like (laughs) triple, quadruple (laughs) SATA speeds. Now... I will say, for those of you buying new motherboards, um, I don't know about putting these into a RAID 0 configuration because uh, M.2 is a a different beast altogether than SATA, but uh, a bunch of newer motherboards all come with a PCIe M.2 capable slot on the motherboard. I have a Gigabyte board in my system right now that has two slots that support up to the 80 millimeter length, and I believe this is the 2280 standard, which is the 80 millimeter length. Mm Um, M.2 SSD. But so. you don't you don't necessarily need a new motherboard to take advantage of this either. They do make adapters you can pop in the PCI slots because 16 what's 16x PCI? Isn't that like uh I think this only re- per second? This only requires a 4x PCIe, so you're not really going to beat it up too hard. You're you know, you'll still have room for like a graphics card as far as your your bus sure, but bandwidth is available. You can upgrade an older motherboard just cuz your motherboard doesn't come with these form factors. I think they're ma- probably what 20 bucks, 25 bucks on Newegg. You can get an adapter that'll do an M.2 to PCI and get whatever performance you can get out of this. Though I know there can be compatibility issues sometimes yeah, booting, depending on the motherboard. Booting may be very, very <laughs> well, yeah, complicated. Yeah, if you want to boot from it. Uh, but for me, I feel like this is kind of specialized. I wouldn't use this for an OS drive. I'd use this purely as like, hey, I've got eight video tracks that I want to do l- a real-time cutting with. You know, That's where I'd use something with this. Now, the speed on something like this has kind of got me thinking, like in five years, maybe four years down the line, are we going to sit there and look back and be like, oh man, all I got are these old slow SSDs in my system. (laughs) If only I could get a newer, uh, you know, SATA driver, you know, not a SATA, but a new faster SSD like this in my system. It's kind of sad really, because right now my setup is a one terabyte SSD for my main drive and one terabyte SSD for my editing drive. And mm-hmm. that works really well. But when I look at the speeds on this thing versus the speeds on my <laughs> uh, SSDs, it's just like, it's night and day. This is gorgeous. Right now, and this question actually came up on on the YouTube comment section on the last episode. Someone was asking about what they should get for a 4K editing system. And I gave mm-hmm. them my specs and kind of told them where I was at. And I'm running an i7-4790. I've got uh, 32 gigs of RAM. I've got a Titan Black GPU in here. I've got a number of SSDs. And I'm able to edit four streams of 4K footage at half resolution without chugging and playing back in real mm-hmm. time. Uh, if I go to full resolution, that's fine. But as soon as I add any sort of uh, color grading effects or transitions or anything it'll start to chug as well. And I'm not 100% sure if the bottleneck is in processing or in well, what code access. Uh, this is uh, H.264, so... Oh, no, that's just H.264, man. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I, I, tell you, I should probably upgrade my CPU to, like, an octa-core or something like that, but 
uh, at half resolution, I can handle it no problem. The uh, Mercury playback engine and my Titan Black are enough juice to sure. to take care of that. So for me, that's fine. But if you're looking for Do the you, ultimate system, I mean, <laughs> the ultimate system. Yeah, where, this where is, do you draw this the is line? overkill. This is slightly overkill. It, let me well, let me put it this way. Uh, I think this is kind of like SSDs is 1080p. Uh, in terms of like you know how how much better it is in the previous generation, and this is like 4K, like it's better on so many accounts, color depth, everything else. But you know 4K, 6K, 8K, none of that's gonna beat us jumping from standard def to 1080p. And I think even people who grow up with 1080p jumping to 4K, considering viewing distances and everything else, is not that significant a jump. It's a lot of uh, power and effort for a little bit more quality to get a little bit closer to, you know, some kind of idealistic version of perfect. And uh, as opposed to, like, SSDs, that's something where you can pop it in an old laptop and, like, it'll bring your old laptop back to life and it'll be, like, fast at browsing the web again and all kinds of stuff. Uh, where getting an even faster SD like this, it's only going to be noticeable by people like us. Like, you know, like if I show 4K to my parents or, you know, my sister, she's they're not going to notice the difference between 1080p and 4K. I will, but they won't necessarily because they don't exactly know what they're looking at. And I feel like these kind of drive speeds is up in that area where uh, SSDs was a big improvement for, like, every computer user everywhere and these SS, this this solid state memory here is just basically for people like us who are like, oh, we, we could never get a drive that's too fast. We could always use something faster. I've so my one terabyte editing drive is the uh, infamous 840 Evo, which had a bunch of firmware and, and software problems. And mm-hmm. if you're familiar with the way that works, it's a SLC cache over uh, TLC memory, which is the triple level cell setup. And the TLC is is a bit slower to access, but it has like a, I want to say like a 20 gig or 12 gig buffer of SLC memory that's constantly buffering from the drive. So for the most part, it keeps up with every everything fine but i have found that it is sometimes the bottleneck when i have very very large projects it's it may be that i would be better served to spend my money on a 850 which does not have that uh, slc caching setup and instead is all mlc memory mm-hmm. but something like this is truly attractive because then it's like i could throw everything at it and then the only thing that's going to limit my access to video footage played back real time is going to be the ability for it to be processed on the fly, which would be CPU bound and, uh, of course, graphics mm-hmm. card bound. And I've only run a few minor tests. I don't really pay super attention to it. But doing four streams from the GH4, you're right. That is a ton of compression. But with a Titan Black, I think... No, no. You know what? And, and, and to that point, it sounds weird, right? But I noticed something. I'm not, I, I feel like I'm not the only one because um, Linus, uh, the Linus Media Group posted a video about their workflow where they have eight or so editors working off of a like rate of like 50 SSD drives or something like that on a 10 gigabit network. And what they noticed is that H.264, no matter what they do and they scrub the timeline, the performance is crap, even though they're all running around with these octa-core i7s and everything else. And uh, I I don't know if they're tying blacks, but I'm pretty sure they're, uh, you know, 980s at least or 990s or something like that. Uh, But they... They've got all this hardware and all this speed, and the timeline performance is crap. And so they've actually switched their workflow so that when they ingest media, it automatically gets encoded to 
uh, they tried like DNX. I think they ended up deciding on Cineform. But when they do something like Cineform, uh, which is not a temporal codec, so it's, you know, like um, all intra codec or whatever it's called. I don't know. There's too many names. ALL dash I or. Yeah. Yeah. But when they switch to that, even though the file sizes are huge, uh, timeline performance is way better. And they're huh. way faster at editing and working with the clips. So it's one of those where I've noticed myself, I've taken my H.264 clips, and I mean, I could have done Cineform, but I didn't really care. I converted them over to MPEG-2 just as a proxy for editing, because uh, just about anything can chug through MPEG-2, because it's such a light codec, even though it is temporal. So, I mean, there's a part of it I feel like is this is an Adobe thing with the way that Adobe is taking in H.264, and it's brilliant that it can do it, and it can edit it very well in RAW and not crash. Uh, but I think that there's some limitations that if you use a better codec that's built for editing, you're going to see better performance. So all my multicam editing, I always proxy because, I mean, I don't have as big of a system as you do, G- DJ, but even four cameras, H.264 at 1080p, uh, my i7 struggles with it. Yeah, I'm so, not going to I'm not gonna waste my time. I mean, no offense, like that's, <laughs> that's a good point, but I'm not going to spend hours and hours transcoding uh, before I start editing just it's not the way I roll. Yeah. Um, it's now not, I will, it's not worth you, your time. You are absolutely right, though. Back in the i7-920 days, I had an HV-20, I believe, which shot uh, 1080p on tape, or maybe it was HV-40. I, I don't remember. But the point is, is that shot it on DV tape, and the output mm-hmm. was MPEG. So the MPEG footage from that camera, once you got it ingested via FireWire, which is a pain in the butt because it's real time, <laughs> don't do that. It sucks. Um, but... The point is, is I could work on that in an i7-920 with 24 gigs of RAM and, like, not have any issue at all. As mm-hmm. soon as I threw H.264 at it, 1080p, it was like I hit a brick wall. I could barely handle anything. And I think these are the days of CS4. So it's not that many generations ago, but it, it – no. It was tough, and, and you're you're totally you're totally right. And I think that it, it part of it is it comes down to Adobe, and probably comes down to something with the codec because the, the people at Adobe are smart. Um, but even if you have the world's biggest dual Xeon computer, whatever, and you have amazing I/O speed, H.264 is still sluggish, and it's still hard to work. Uh, real time if you're going to do multiple layers or be really heavy on your effects. And so it's either some kind of limitation with the codec playback or it's a limitation of Adobe uh, and the way that they get performance out of H.264. But that's something I've noticed is like my computer will stutter and I'll watch the CPU do absolutely nothing. And my drive, of course, is doing nothing because H.264, it's like a 100 megabyte clip. What does it matter? So it's one of those things where I, I don't know where the bottleneck is, but I feel like it's not in the hardware. It has to be something with the coding, either the software or that. But I've never heard of anything editing H.264 faster than Adobe. Um, or I hear they all basically edit at about the same speed. They have the same performance on the timeline. So it could just be a limit of the codec. And, uh, you know, maybe H.265 will be way better for uh, in terms of multi-core uh, rendering and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so much issues with Kodaks. <laughs> and then, you know, it's extra disappointing. I was reading up on the uh, Sony FS5 today, and, you know, it's using the XAVC, so basically H.264 mm-hmm. encoding as well with, like, a slightly higher bit rate. I mean, come on, guys, give me something new. Give, yeah. give, me, <laughs> give me some better flavor, yo. Um, all yep. right, <laughs> moving on down the line here, uh, Snapseed. Uh, we wanted to talk about this just a little bit. Google's native photo editing app now is able to handle RAW. This isn't the biggest deal in the world, but it is really handy for those of you with cell phones trying to work on your footage. Now, 
good ways to get raw footage into your camera. That's the part where I get kind of caught up with this. If you think about editing raw photos on your phone, Snapseed supports DNG format, so you have to convert whatever camera you're using to DNG. Is there a way, Devin, do you know, to do that in cam- or in your phone? And Not that I know of. Not, so, I've never heard of any way to do a DNG convert. I'm going to tell you the way that I use Snapseed, and actually I was just playing around with this before Devin put it in the show notes. Really interesting for me because I basically have uh, Google Photos running in the background, uploading all my raw files to the cloud and uh, storing everything, organizing it, you know, making it really easy to sort through. Now, I can actually go to my Google Photos app on my phone and download the GNG files because I convert via Lightroom and do quick editing and post stuff in that manner. So for me, that's fairly handy, but I've also been falling into, you know, kind of this uh, uh, workflow where I'm using uh, Polar, that thing we talked about before, which there's a Chrome yeah. app, there's a... Uh, an Android app, and I believe there's even a just a plain Jane uh, standalone Windows app available for that, and it does handle DNG files as well. So for me, I kind of feel like that is the way to go. You know, have your photos stored somewhere else. Use Lightroom when you need to perform heavy tasks, but if you're just dumping like 20 pictures of mm-hmm. your friends or something like that, maybe that's the way to go. Do you, do you know if the Photoshop Express for Android or iOS has like, the wide raw support that Photoshop does, or is that just DNG only? You know what? I have yet to test it. I know I should. I pay <laughs> you for You own my... a Creative Cloud. Just download it, man. I, it's, it's on my list, but <laughs> it's just, it's like the learning curve. And I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Is it available for Android? Because I know it's available for iPad yeah. and iOS devices, but uh, I haven't actually yep. looked to see if it's available for Android. Uh, Adobe Photoshop Express, let me see, was um, – I was trying to see when it was last updated. I like looking at that stuff. Uh, February 13th, 2015 was the last time it was updated. has about 10 million installs. Hmm. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Uh, anyway, Snapseed, my complaints uh, real quick are <laughs> yeah, the touch interface is a pain in the butt, man. Um, I'm not very compassive. I don't know if anybody – Really wants to get nitty gritty on that, but <laughs> for some reason, I have dry hands and my fingers don't uh, intricately work with touchscreens very well. So trying to get the thing to flip up and you know give me access mm-hmm. to all the regular editing stuff, and then it's sort of this not very convenient scroll method of working through your raw files. So you have to kind of scroll up and down for shadow contrast, uh, you know, anything like that. If you want to do any curve adjustments, you're, you're kind of mm-hmm. thumbing through a bunch of up and down things. Whereas the uh, Polar setup is, is more, it's more like Lightroom. You know, you have mm-hmm. your, your pane on the side, you have your image in the middle, and then you have all of your adjustments on the side. I like that format better than I do Snapseed, but give it a try. Really interesting. Devin, you going to check free. this out, man? Yeah, it is free. So you might as well try it. I mean, come on, you can't beat that price. It comes from Google, so you know it's going to run well if you have an Android device, um, and it's free. So by all means, it's worth, uh, it's worth trying. And I think it's just it's one of those things where uh, Adobe hasn't done anything to like step out and say, hey, we're really – besides like they have YouTube, which is distribution, and they add a few creative tools to it. Yeah. Um, but they've they've never like ever really been serious in like we want to take over professional photography, we want to get into that market or something like that. Uh, but it's interesting that Google's just like 
slowly building better and better products at media creation, not necessarily in the video department because the YouTube is still pretty lacking, uh, but they're really moving towards cloud versions of editing your content because, uh, of course, that's where their money is, is all up in the cloud. And so it's it's interesting to see them slowly like add these major features and improvements to their software uh, rather quietly, too. They, they don't make a video or make a big boast about it, but they kind of slowly are building better and better products. Um, and so I wonder if they're, they're kind of interested in that market. Not that I ever think that they would, you know, get near touching Adobe or anything like that within the next 10 years, but it's one of those where it's kind of interesting because I think they really, it's, it's, I feel like they're fighting Apple and Microsoft on two fronts in terms of like trying to take over office and trying to take over like, uh, you know, kind of light media creation, like storing your photos and like chatting with your friends and everything else. Cause iMessage and everything else. That was all kind of Apple's territory, iMovie, iPhoto. And then, you know, Office was Microsoft's territory. And I kind of feel like they're both creeping into that market share being like, hey, we're here too. What's really frustrating, though, about Google's approach is it's not very unified. And uh, just looking Mm -hmm. right here, so we have Snapseed, and Snapseed has all these editing capabilities. But here is a picture from Google Photos. And let me... Let me go back to this so you can see the information on it. So this was shot with a Canon 5D. It's converted over to Mm -hmm. uh, DNG. And I click the edit here, and all I have are these super basic, like, oh, you want to make your photo look like it's on Mars? Oh, you want to, you know, what? Great. And there's... I mean... I can add a little bit of you, vignette, and I can, uh, you know, change the color a little bit. And, and there, there's a pop slider. Yeah, great. I like that. Just, just what I wanted. <laughs> I want to make this pop. Whoa, whoa what, is, what is that even doing? This, right. It's just, like, really, okay, so you have these features. You have this stuff. Uh, go well, ahead. That's, that's not even taking advantage of the raw part. Like, it's opening a raw file, but since you can't change, really, exposure or, like, color temperature or any complicated color math, I'm like, that looks like they just took the JPEG 8-bit, 8-bit JPEG tools and slapped them on top of a raw photo. Exactly. And I'm like, well, that's... Yeah, so it would be nice. You're right. It's Part of it, too, is I feel like that it's just very diverse. There's lots of different uh, people in many different areas who don't communicate, who just work on their own projects, and they do one thing, and they do it really well kind of an idea. Uh, but you're right. I think that Google... That that's the next step is Google start to bring it all together and merge it all together, which they've been doing for a long time. Like the Google Plus and the YouTube thing went terrible and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, but I think they're trying to work on bringing it all together. Uh, and once it, that starts to really click, I mean, who knows how much power Google will have at that point if they own all your documents and all your personal photos and everything else. Well, I, I'm all in. Uh, you know, I use <laughs> yeah. I use Chrome I, I am too. for everything. I, I love I, the the notifications. You know what's great is they scan my email, and then I get little, like, uh, uh, Chrome updates that say, hey, you've got a flight tomorrow at whatever time, and, like, oh, yeah, I here, love that here's stuff. how to get there, you know, here's some recommendations on where to stay when you get there. Those sorts of things are, are super handy, but I want it all to be kind of streamlined so I can just drop right. stuff into my Google Now and have it all work together. When I open up a raw photo, I want to be able to do the editing that I want to do. I want Docs. I want Google Keep to work the way I think it should so that I can you know, write notes and it'll show up in Google Now. But instead, they're all kind of their little fiefdoms separated from each <laughs> other, and none of them work together. And it's just really frustrating for me. Now, what's not frustrating for me <laughs> is that I finally get, got my PayPal problem sorted out with RoboCam. If you guys remember me talking in the last episode, I was trying to buy a copy of RoboCam. And somehow I got locked mm-hmm. out of uh, purchasing that. I don't know exactly what happened there. But I got a copy of it, started playing around with it today. Have had zero luck on Windows 10. 
But really? I did get it working on Windows 7. And so with Windows 7, I was able to control my Panasonic LX100 and my GH4. Uh, pretty interesting, the ability to start and stop recording on both cameras simultaneously, seeing a view of both of those. Now, I am actually using, and I don't know if I can show this very well, The if you look over there somewhere, it's the same router <laughs> that... Uh, they show in their demos that is the Asus uh, AC6068, I believe. And uh, the Asus AC68 is a, a beautiful, like, $150 router. So uh, I may be experiencing this better than some. Uh, they do recommend an AC router. Devin, what do you think, like, the practical applications for me would be uh, interviews and multi-cam shoots where I don't have enough people to run cameras and I could use the Zoom feature. But can you think of mm-hmm. any other applications for something like this? Uh, you know what? I feel like the over-the-basic app that comes with the Panasonic cameras, uh, which was pretty limited in the GH3, uh, it was still really nice to see them in that. But the GH4, they did way better in terms of remote control, remote viewing, and everything else. Um, I feel like that is like the one niche where this kind of fits, is it's your... Uh, is is running a two camera shoot by yourself um i i mean as well as double checking recording or something like that to me it, most of the time it feels like it's a little too much hassle than it's worth uh in terms of trying to set up i mean just because you're talking about problems with windows 10 yeah. which has been in beta and it's been out for a while and i'm not saying every developer in the world should have you know be already be set up and working fine with windows 10 but like I don't know, it, the software should at least be able to open in Windows 10. So that just that's that's a game breaking bug right there that hasn't been fixed on an operating system that's been free beta for developers, you know, to sit there and test out for a long time. So I like the idea. I like where it's going. Um, and to, I don't think it's. I think it's good for the price. It's just one of those things that I really couldn't see myself using uh, for you know. Just because most of the time it's not that difficult to jump between the two. If you're in a situation where you've got something up on a jib or something like that and most of the work you're doing is remote with your camera, then sure. Uh, But most of that, there's a better way to remotely control your camera, uh, usually through something like the LANC port or something like that, um, or, you know, maybe through a grip relocator like we talked about a few weeks ago. Uh, but there's there's usually I always like kind of something more physical in a way of syncing up two cameras and like having both record at the same time and unrecord and stuff. And I've done that a few times where I've plugged in little remotes or used IR yeah. remotes to set cameras off. So it's one of those that I like this. But it right now, unless like like really get over, uh, you know, making it easier to use, it's one of those that I'm not sure it's really worth it for me. I mean, it does say on their website they only currently support Windows Seven and Windows Eight. Yeah. So that was you know, the issue. They, it wasn't actually that the software wouldn't start up; it was logging into it. Um, you have to access the network, and then it shows you all the computers on the network. And I was able to access any of the systems that were running Windows Seven. I don't have any currently that are running Windows Eight Point One. Uh, and I couldn't log in for whatever reason to the home network associated with Windows 10. So it may be like a security issue that they've set up in Windows mm-hmm. 10 that is blocking it. Now, yeah. I got spoiled with the old remote because I used to use the IRC, the <laughs> RC1 remote for uh, Canon cameras because you know you could IR blast like three cameras simultaneously and get everything yeah. to start rolling at, at this roughly the same time. And it, it was super handy, you know, and you half pressed or you press once with the switch turned one way to focus 
and then you press again to start recording. And I, I used to use that all the time. I still do on my Canon 5D Mark III and my 6D. But with the GH4, you don't really have anything as convenient, or no. I haven't found anything as convenient. So using the app is fine, and it's great. Okay, good. I can frame myself. But I could do that with the uh, screen app. that flips around anyway. Why do I need... Oh, yeah, and you the know, screen. <laughs> why do I need the app? I, you know, I just want to be able to point at the camera and start recording and stop recording. But with this, at least, like, use your cell phone. Uh, it, it heats up, A, because you're using Wi-Fi. You have to keep the screen on, mm-hmm. B. So now you're going in the worst possible battery usage uh, scenario for a cell phone. You eat through your battery. Your cell phone's heating up. And if you're trying to do this all day, you know, it's not really that convenient. But if I could set a, a small laptop or a Windows tablet that's plugged in next to me and use that as the controller for all these then maybe I get a little bit longer use out of it. You know, if I can just leave that on the table and whenever I need to start and stop, I can reach over and hit the button. That's great. If anybody knows better ways to start multiple Panasonic cameras recording than a Wi-Fi tethered app, I would love to hear it from you guys because, you know, IR blasters would be great. Some sort of Mm -hmm. uh, cabled remote would be awesome. I don't think it supports uh, LARC uh plug in on no. that as far as i know anyway i don't think that's a thing on any of the consumer grade dslrs it, it, technically i though i feel like you could wire up your own infrared receiver um not that i'm an electrical engineering genius like dj over there but uh considering that the protocol that like the lanc port uses i figure like uh, a few pieces of solder and you know an infrared diode receiver and stuff like that you could probably set it up so that hey when it gets this frequency it fires off a relay that sends you know one and a half volts or whatever over to uh, the lanc port which goes okay you press the trigger so like it wouldn't i i don't think anyone's invented that product but i feel like that's something that you could add on to a camera for me the part of it too is the robocam only supporting two cameras which i get there's limitations to wi-fi and everything else the one other situation i was thinking of this was if per se you set up uh an entire studio kind of uh, like a three camera studio or four camera studio this would kind of be a way for like one guy to start recording on all of them for backups or later for syncing or something yeah. like that, as well as being able to kind of adjust focus and zoom and like have a lot of those controls without having like three devices in front of him all tethered to, you know, three cameras. So I could see that being really useful because I've heard of a few people who use, uh, you know, GH4s for studio use, like for internet studio kind of use and stuff like that, not for necessarily television broadcast or anything, but... Um, so I, I could see it being useful in that niche, uh, but also, too, like getting the Wi-Fi networks and set up all that before a shoot, just it seems more trouble than it's worth. Well, if you're using it in studio for uh, like a broadcast, not necessarily the broadcast, but like a, a YouTube multicam sort of thing, you could use the uh, YAG whatever grip on the Panasonic, and I believe it accepts uh, control via either HDMI or S- SDI. So you can send oh, overhead yeah. control that way in order to start multiple cameras simultaneously. Uh, and true. a lot of switchers are capable of doing that. So that that is like a, a pretty reasonable way mm-hmm. if you're doing like stationary cameras set up around the studio and just wiring it yeah. in. 
And I, I could probably take advantage of something like that if I really wanted to, or I could get really creative and grab a Raspberry Pi and a <laughs> Wi-Fi tethered device to it and create a hotspot and then a you know attach a button of some kind mm-hmm. and like cap. But that's just too much work. <laughs> I'm not going to reinvent the wheel on this. Someone else come up with mm-hmm. something good and I'll use it. Trust me. <laughs> now, this one actually is something Dev and I were talking about pre-show, and it's kind of interesting, a little topic that I've addressed before, but it's good to talk about again. Devin, you're looking at buying some uh, lenses for your Micro Four Thirds cameras, and you've kind of yeah. been uh, rolling around the idea of picking up a 12 to 35 millimeter or a 12 to 40 millimeter lens for your GH3. Is that correct? Uh, absolutely, yeah. They've because um, we talked about was it last week or the week before the Panasonics have really gone down in price. Um, that twelve to thirty five two point eight has gone down to you know used for under sometimes under six hundred even five fifty. I've seen it gone used for as well as a few others. Um, as well as to the Olympus, on the other hand, has kept its value. I mean, both of these lenses were a little over a thousand uh, when they were coming out, and DJ was talking about them and writing about them on his blog and whatnot. Uh, but the the Olympus, there's very few of them in the marketplace, and they still go for, um, I want to say a little over 700, maybe 750, maybe 800, depending on the condition. Uh, and so I was kind of looking at the Panasonic just because there was a pretty good price gap, and I could make use of the image stabilization uh, because this would be more of a documentary lens for me and less for like a cinematic look or something like that, something that's automatic. The autofocus is fast and works great. And that's what I wanted is great autofocus and image stabilization. And then DJ just ran on my whole parade by saying that the image stabilization works like crap in 4K. Oh, so. man, you just spoiled my <laughs> launch. Okay, so here's what I ran into. And I have some Panasonic glass and I have some Olympus glass. Right here is the Olympus 12 to 40 millimeter F2.8. And take a look at this, guys. You know, all metal, real nice and solid really well built. This one's taken hits from seawater, all kinds of stuff. It also, you can lock in the focus ring and now you have actual hard stops on your focus where the Panasonic is fly by wire. Really just Olympus does a good job building their lenses. Now this thing, super heavy, way heavier than the 12 to 35. And that's an advantage for the 12 to 35. But if you hold the 12 to 35 from Panasonic, it's very plasticky. Uh, the build quality is not super solid. It, and just as an example here, since I have it in front of me, this is the 35 to 100. And, you know, I like this lens. I use it all the time. It's great. And IS does work fairly well on this. But uh, it's it's not very well built. It's just kind of uh, cheap feeling. You, you like that full metal body. You like that extra weight. I carry around too much crap. I'm trying to find lighter gear. But you, you like a, a very strong lens. Yes. Now, on the other hand... This thing right here, and as well as the 12 to 35 millimeter, the IS, at 1080p, it's not noticeable. You can turn on IS, and you're just fine. It stabilizes pretty well. Uh, it's good for handheld stuff, and your image looks good. But if you shoot in 4K with uh, IS turned on, I personally have found that it sort of washes out your image a little bit. Uh, you sort of get this soft look to everything that you don't normally get with the GH4. Now, I haven't been able to confirm or deny that from anybody else, but in my testing, that's what I see. So I generally keep the IS off on these lenses unless I'm using them for photography. Now, I know that Panasonic lenses are a lot smaller and lighter, and this is a great example of that. This is the 7 to 14 millimeter f2.8, a wide angle lens, and this thing is 
roughly three times the size of the F4 offering <laughs> from Panasonic. It weighs right. a lot. It's hefty. I mean, this is actually, it might actually be heavier than my 16 to 35 <laughs> millimeter f2.8 for my canon glass so uh, that's crazy to me and i understand Devin completely like uh, it sucks carrying around more weight and i'm trying to to scale down and in in that regard i think the panasonic lens wins the issue for me is just that if you're buying it for the is you're kind of it's not as good of a sell as you think it would be. do you think sure for a gh4 do you think um that maybe the problem, the reason why it gets softer is because of the um, very, aggra- I don't know how to say, aud- audacious rolling shutter in 4K mode. Because I know that the 4K mode on the GH4 has a lot more rolling shutter than the uh, than 1080p mode from the tests I've seen. And so I'm guessing that maybe it's that rolling shutter, it's that motion, and so then it softens up because it's just kind of generally a little slower to update. I mean... It could be, man. Like possibly. That's, well, yeah. that's speculation. I, I personally, <laughs> I think that because the uh, spinning portion of the image stabilization system is so close to the body and the mm-hmm. body and the lens are so small and lightweight, it actually sort of shakes the camera body while it's shaking the lens, whereas the IS system mm. in a full-frame camera is, is sort of towards the balancing right. point of the lens itself. Uh, the mm-hmm. lenses from Panasonic are so light and so lightweight that the IS actually, you can kind of feel the camera just a little bit sort of shaking. And that shake is enough to me to make it soft. Now, is it at the end that of the world be. soft? No, it's not. Like, you can still look at the footage and be like, yeah, this looks fine. But when you do just a test of switching it off and then switching back on and switching it off and switching it back on again, and you, you look at your footage, you're like, wait a minute, what just happened right there? And you can see right. it. But if you shoot with just IS on all the time, you're probably not going to be that concerned with it. And it, honestly, it was kind of a linchpin for me, but for everybody else, it's not. The other thing I really like about the Olympus class is, again, you know, I like having hard stops on my lens. I, the fly-by-wire stuff is fine, but, you know, this guy feels a lot better in my hand, personally. And Olympus usually adds in this uh, programmable button that doesn't work with Panasonic stuff. So don't even worry about the button. Never mind. But speaking speaking of Olympus, they're coming out with a few lenses, right? Oh, uh, yeah. We've got the uh, way to transition, Devin, man. <laughs> Just spoiling it by pointing it out. Okay, so we've also got the Olympus 30 millimeter or 300 millimeter F4, F4. on the horizon. This uh, beauty has been kind of sitting around and waiting to be released for, I think, since 2000. 15 or 2014 is when they started talking about that that was actually it's a pro lens yeah it is and uh, <laughs> that was in the same announcement time as this uh what is it 7 to 14 millimeter f2.8 that i'm holding up right now uh this actually did finally make it out great lens love it by the way but this guy here <laughs> is it's an f4 across the board it's uh and by across right. the board, I mean it's uh, three uh, three hundred millimeters. Slow. So it's just a it's a really big uh, uh, zoom lens prime. prime. Now, yeah. why wouldn't you just get this guy right here? This is the forty. There's no to image stabilization, man. There's no image stabilization. That's true. But n- note the shoe on the bottom <laughs> well, of this but guy. It, it, to, I mean, to me, with f four, I feel like f four is the area where. Um, image stabilization can become very helpful, not just because you're telephoto, 
but trying to take pictures with a longer shutter with telephoto, the image stabilization because uh, when you're in darker scenes and stuff like that, and f fours as far as you go, and you're trying to brighten up the scene by uh, opening up the shutter for longer, image stabilization can be really helpful to get you that extra stop of light that you need to really make the photo work. So I think it's going to come out for about two grand or so. I'm not completely sure on that. I think that's pro- projected or estimated, but I, there's there's I've, I feel like. Um, People who do photography of birds. It is weird to have a 300 prime, though, right? Yeah. So that's usually what... your telephotos are a zoom because you're going to do bird watching or something like that. You're going to do yeah. something where you're far away from an object and changing using your feet to change your focal length isn't really an option because changing from, say, 150 to 200 is like a lot to walk that distance to change that framing. So. Well, and that's the thing about the 40 to 150 is uh, with the 1.4x uh, adapter on this, you're basically getting a 112 to 420 millimeter uh, full frame equivalent. So that seems like enough reach as is. And with 1.4x, you're losing about a stop. So you're going from like f2.8 to f4. So now this is about the same category and it's a zoom range, sure. uh, has a zoom range to it. So you have. A little bit more use out of it. I mean, you can go take your uh, multiplier off and you can shoot at 40 to 150. You can put your multiplier on. You can shoot the birds if you want. And I don't know. To me, if you're going to use this, something like this, this would be for, I suppose, sports, A, or, you know, animal photography or uh, I, I can't really think uh, personally any video applications that I would just be jonesing for a 300 millimeter prime. Uh, can you? No, no, I because yeah, because it isn't a zoom and it just seems so weird. I feel like I I pull that photo up uh, and start to be like, okay, how am I going to create my composition? And then be like, oh well, this isn't necessarily as wide as I want it to be, or like as as close as I want it to be. And I feel like just a lot of walking because it's just it it feels <laughs> like there's just so much walking you'd have to do to get the framing you want because three hundred is just kind of. It's really long because it's equivalent of like 600. It's it's almost a telescope. You know, you're it's basically binoculars. Yeah. And that kind of works, but then it limits you creatively in terms of like trying to frame your photos just because you're usually going to take pictures of things far away that you don't have control over. So being able to zoom is really important. So it's a little bit of a strange lens, but maybe, um, you know, optically it performs better than you with a 2X uh, converter on it, and the Im- image stabilization may be, like, really killer for something like this. Yeah, and those are both probably true, uh, especially if you start getting into the higher megapixel count, like the GX8 where it's a 20-megapixel sensor as opposed to a 16-megapixel sensor. Uh, honestly, for me, I use this to stay out of the action but get the shot as though I was close to the action. A lot of times when mm-hmm. I'm shooting uh, gore effects or anything that shoots out uh, blood and guts, any kind of spray you want to stay <laughs> camera clear from. And I do have like a, a glass enclosure for the camera to protect it. But when you see something hit that, it kind of takes you away from the whole oh, yeah. scene. So uh, a lot of times if I'm doing special effects shots, practical special effects, I like to use this guy or the 70-200 and and back as far away as I can and still get a full frame of whatever's going on. Uh, 600, though, you know, because this is a 300 right. to 600 equivalent. I mean, man, you're going to have to be way out there. It's just 
I don't know, two thousand dollars too is a pretty big investment for Micro Four Thirds uh, stuff. I think I spent twelve hundred dollars with the uh, multiplier on this guy, so uh, you know, far more usable for me personally. I'm sure there are definitely some applications for this. We've probably spent too much time talking about the yeah, we probably have. Four. All right, moving on down the line, we've got a few cool things here, and this is actually one of them, and let me bring this up because I'm holding too many lenses right now. Look at this. <laughs> okay, this is a gun attachment for the Olympus Air, and if you're not familiar with the Olympus Air, we've talked about it a few times. It's a very tiny, cute little micro four-thirds camera that basically has a 16-megapixel sensor inside of a tiny body. People have been 3D printing various types of, of containers for this little guy and mm -hmm. this is mine right here it has a little flip out to hold your cell phone you can extend that and single button on the top uh you can pretty much build whatever you want for this and they actually have sort of an open standard for uh, the housing so you can go to olympus and get the specs for this particular mount and build whatever you want to twist it in lock it into place so mm -hmm. the gun thing's not that exciting for me but there are a few, <laughs> you don't like it yeah i mean what do i need like a little snub-nosed gun looking <laughs> thing to shoot photos with because you know i haven't really been using this much for video but right it's cool it's interesting i think the more interesting thing are some of the other adapters and i can put some of those in the show notes but this right here if you look on the back is basically the screw in portion it attaches like so you can use that to adapt this to an actual camera body that's kind of interesting with the cell phone holder uh they've got metal mm -hmm. versions of that uh, a few different flavors are available online from uh japan and china uh they're they're definitely cool but in the end i think you're trying to turn this into this and it's really right. not the same thing you know, the Olympus Air is great for what it is. Something really tiny that I can shoot full photos as though I were working with a GH4 uh, using my cell phone and using uh, interchangeable lenses. So that's mm -hmm. really the sweet spot. If you start trying to turn this into a actual full-fledged camera, you're going to fail because, you know, you got lag, you got all the other things that are associated with that for yeah. using your cell phone via Wi-Fi connection. I mean, it's and, cool. Well, if if you're going to uh, build it out and make it bigger uh, and start taking up more space, it's almost like, you know, there's like a G7 option. There's like a lot better options for this exact situation. Uh, the Air is supposed to be all about that small size and just, you know, because of small size convenience of always having it on you. And if you're, you know, going to build it out and start making like try to kind of turn it into a DSLR kind of a thing, it's like, well, you're it's going to stink because, you know, there's way better options for the same price as an Air. Yeah, definitely. Now, one of the things I am excited about, and I'm on this Kickstarter, uh, mine's supposed to be delivered coming fairly soon, the E1 camera, which is basically a Panasonic GH4 sensor shoved into a tiny body about the size of the Olympus Air. Uh, this actually has a monitor built in, a low-resolution like GoPro-style monitor. It has controls for the camera and everything else, so you do get that kind of instant control. This guy is probably, and I'm looking through, oh, let's see, I think they have some pictures of it, uh, survey. Oh, yeah, I don't want to share my address with you guys. Oh. <laughs> all right, well, anyway, the, the point I'm getting at is that's more along the lines of like an all-in-one type of device. I was hoping right. that the Olympus Air would be that for me, but what it turns out to be is just the emergency camera that I throw 
into my backpack when I'm traveling. And if nothing else, I have it there to put a lens on. What I've mm-hmm. really ended up doing is I thought this would be the camera I always carried with me, but the Olympic or the Panasonic LX100 has become like my ultimate travel camera because <laughs> I don't even have to carry a lens with that guy. It yeah, and it's just super built. compact. Yeah, you, you can't you can't beat the compactness you get from something that is you know I guess you call it a point and shoot uh, kind of camera because those lenses they always you know the way they build the sensor and the lens is all integrated together. You can't get a smaller package than that for so for something they always keep in your pocket. Um, while, you know, people brag about the quality of their DSLRs, uh, those are the kind of cameras you can always have on you as a point and shoot. So, and I, I've been jealous of your LX100. Yeah. I, I've, <laughs> uh, talked a number of photographers into shooting with the LX100. A couple of people I know have decided that, uh, maybe they don't need to carry their 24 to 70 and 5D Mark II around <laughs> anymore because it's just such a pain in the butt. So. Yeah, no, for sure. And the quality on it's really great. Um, and so for uh, moving on, because we're, we're going to run out of time because we have too many stories on here. Yeah. Um, uh, I threw in real quick, uh, Whipster did a huge change to their pricing. If you don't remember, Whipster was a, one of the websites I mentioned about uploading your footage to a place where everyone can look at it, make comments that fit time markers and everything else. And uh, Whipster went ahead and uh, made unlimited storage. Uh, it's still, f- and but Whipster was one of the ones I was most interested in because their pricing was very low for small teams and whatnot. Uh, it's fifteen dollars per user per month, but it's unlimited, you know, sharing per se with however many people you want. So you could just sign up for one account, send it to a bunch of people to comment on. It's only the advanced features of being able to like manage how many revisions there are and all kinds of stuff like that to do list that you would want to set up a second account. So. Uh, from when I last used this, you could just sign up for $15 a month and start using this to send to clients and get feedback from your clients on it. They don't need to you know, sign up for anything uh, necessarily, but I turned away from it because they had time limits on their footage. Uh, so I think it was something like you know, 15 minutes, but they're like, hey, uh, you, know, you could take off a video and that would like free up time and then upload a different video. Uh, but I was like, 15 minutes is way too short. There's, you know, sometimes I shoot a concert or something like that. It's more than an hour long. Uh, so I always shied away from it. But now they're removing all of those limits for storage. So it's just $15 and you can upload as much as you want, share it with people. Um, it's also kind of nice too, because uh, there's a few people, unfortunately, who, uh, you know, you trust too much and I share something on YouTube and they actually then rip it and upload it to Facebook because uh, that's oh, relatively no. easy to do. Right. Going through, uh, I mean, of course, watermarking is always a good idea if you don't have something in a contract for uh, damages or penalties. Uh, But so websites like this, just because they're different, uh, there aren't automatic tools, you know, on Firefox or Google Chrome to rip videos off of these websites. Uh, And they tend to do pretty okay on making sure that like no generic ways of kind of cutting through the code. Uh, can you grab one of these things? I'm not saying it's impervious. I'm just saying that it makes it harder than just one click. So most of your clients wouldn't would have a harder time trying to you know steal their footage, steal your footage, not pay for it or whatever. So that's one of the reasons to use a site like this, as well as it's kind of a n- cool way to get notes and stuff like that. I think it works best really though if you're with a team of people, a production team or something, where people are actually going to comment with time markers. There's going to be revisions, and you're going to go through a process. Most clients are basically just going to look at the you know uh, time code you print at the bottom and write back where they want their changes done. But um, 
I think for short films or stuff like that, it can definitely be useful if, you know, that's how the entire team likes to work. It depends on what workflow works for you. So real quick, just wanted to mention that DJ doesn't use any of this. No. Uh, he probably just uploads to Dropbox and has a client view it from there. And Actually, uh, my trick is I upload it in the lowest res of 20p I can kick out. Uh, basically like mm-hmm. a, a two meg encoding stream and then <laughs> put it on uh, Google Drive and let them watch it mm-hmm. from there. That way, if they steal it, that's fine. If they try to use it for anything, it's going to look awful. It has a watermark on it. You know, deal with it. Yeah. And then I do uh, basically Hangouts in order to do live edit changes. So I've I've over the last um, six months or eight months, I've kind of fallen in love with Hangouts as a method for working with uh, clients as well as co-editors and producers to kind of clean things up because there's nothing better than having the person there uh, watching alongside you as you edit saying like this is the section right here in my notes that I I want this change you show them the change they're like no nah, that's not quite what I was thinking and then you you fuss around with it a little bit more mm-hmm. show them again and it, it's really nice especially if you're in like a remote situation where they're not in the same room as you or the same state as you or anything else so uh, sure yeah really love that hey, d- hangouts is great and I use Skype for a long time hangouts is great too um, I'm big into all that stuff, but Skype kind of got unreliable after a while. All right, sorry, man. Go to the multicam <laughs> thing. You want to talk about this? You're excited about it. I am not. This is yeah, of course the Apollo. Um, yeah, the Apollo. Uh, they came out with a portable uh, multi-input capture device. Uh, it looks a bit, you know, it's a bit like these um, these Shoguns and these ninjas and whatnot. Looks like the Odyssey. What's interesting, yeah, or yeah. Uh, what's interesting about this one is that uh, it'll take four. It'll do four pro reses. I mean, we're talking 1080p here. We're not talking 4K, but it'll do four simultaneously. And it'll record a fifth stream of you live cutting those four streams. So uh, while this is a little niche, um, when you consider, let's say, somebody wanted a live shoot of uh, or, uh, or a live recording of, say, a concert, um, a reality show, something like that, Normally, you'd capture it all, and then in post, you'd watch the whole thing, two hours long, whatever it is, and you cut it, and you put it together, and that's that. This can greatly speed up production because you can cut on the fly while it's happening, uh, whether a director, tech director, whatever is there, can actually cut on the fly, and now your fifth stream kind of acts as, you know, you can lay them on the timeline. They'll all sync up perfectly because they all started and stopped at the same time, and then you can, you know, just fix your little, you know, mess-ups in the cut or whatever else or things that you need to work around uh, after the fact, and the fact that it's uh, $4,000 seems a little bit pricey, but, like, when you consider if you wanted to get the cheapest uh, Blackmagic 4K or the Blackmagic 1080p switcher they make, which I think is about a little under two, maybe $1,800. Yeah. And then you you take advantage of that. You want to record each stream uh, by itself in ProRes. That's like, you know, uh, two Hyperdex, dual Hyperdex, or it's like four of the uh, the cartridge-looking Hyperdex things. And then, uh, and then on top of that, you power the whole thing, and it's like, holy crap, that is a lot of money. You're spending probably close to about six or seven grand and you have a really big cumbersome solution now if you're doing like on the fly switching and you need graphics and everything else then yeah you need that uh but this is a situation where if you're going to know that it's you you work in a field where you're going to edit later all the time and you're not going live to a sat truck or something like that this is really cool just because no one's ever made a, a product like this this is by itself in the marketplace 
because uh, um, it gives you that portability. It it'll save you time in post, um, and just you know, uh, the the fact the fact that you get so much in a package because you are getting four recorders, you're getting a, a switched view, um, and everything else, and it's all ProRes, you know, for, uh, HQ or whatever you need, four four four. So. All those things combined together, I just I thought it was really cool because as far as I've seen, no one's ever made a product like this. So I know this doesn't this isn't useful for everyone, uh, probably especially not people who are in live production because they need a little bit more serious tools when it comes to switching. But it's one of those tools that is like surprisingly cheap for how much they give you, and I'm sure that there's a there's a good number of people out there who is like this is the perfect thing that's going to change the way uh, we shoot every day. So it's exciting to see. Now, when you're doing your live cuts on this, is it generating any kind of metadata that you could drop into like Premiere or something like that in order to, uh, you know, do your multicam edits in post? As as far as I saw, it was just, uh, it was more just you would look at that, that video feed because uh, that fifth video feed is just going to show you all the cuts as it happens. As far as I saw, there wasn't any metadata I didn't see any time code stuff or anything like that. I think that the workflow is just built where you lay down uh, camera five, per se, as your master. And then cameras one, two, three, and four, you layer on top. And whenever you need to fix a cut, you just cut out which camera you want it to go over it. So uh, I don't think that they really built any syncing into it from what I saw. Not that I've used it, but from what I saw. Uh, and I feel like they probably think it's not necessary because if you're using the tool this way, then you don't care about syncing because as soon as you hit record, everything's in sync. Now, so. what about controls? Are there any buttons or maybe like a fader interface that you can use on the fly, like a regular studio control setup that you could plug into this guy? Because, I mean, really, if you're uh, just like simple cuts back and forth, you're kind of crippling yourself where you'd want to have a little bit of control over like fades and transitions and so on. Uh, as far as I saw, I didn't see anything about um, you like a big uh, dial or, or anything. Yeah. Knob. I, I feel like you're going to do all that stuff in post. And that's why I said this doesn't exactly seem like for something that's live. If it's live, you're going to want a lot more control. Um, but this is something that when you're, you are you want to go to post and you want to kind of skip whatever it may be, the first two hours of editing where you're just doing a basic cut of uh, all of the cameras, this can go ahead and save you a crap ton of time. Uh, but... Yeah, um, I mean, besides the usual, no Genlocks required. It's got HDMI output, too, if you want to kick it out to something else. It's a 7.7-inch OLED screen, uh, and, you know, it's only a, a little under a pound and a half, so... Mm. That's um, a lot of power it, in a single box. It, it is, and it's got... It's. I saw USB... For some reason, I can't find anyone who mentioned how you would interface with it, but I saw USB um, on it, and so I imagine you're going to hook up either a specific device by them or there's a few devices that, you know, you can program HID compatibility. I forget what one of them was, uh, but it's like a row of 16 buttons you can buy for uh, about 100 bucks, And you can pull the caps off of them and label them. They're backlit. Uh, and I, I can't remember what the company is that makes them. They also make shorter versions of it as well. Uh, but I see people use it all the time in studios because you can, like, just stick this row of buttons underneath monitors and run the USB inside to control like a computer, control yeah. like a black magic switcher. You can program them for anything. So I'm sure something like that is what you'd interface with this um, in order to run it. But I mean, also too, like I get that it's super portable, but it seems kind of silly because in their promo images, they mount it on top of a uh, like an Area Alexa. Like 
I don't know. Like, it's going to be plugged in there, and then someone's going to stand next to the camera and switch it. Like, you could do that. I just don't think that would be a great workflow. You think you'd put in like a video village or something, but still. In any case, um, it, it seems super interesting. It's supposed to be a decent monitor too, because you're going to have your false color focus assist, histogram, you know, zooms and everything. You else. You might be able to do like a really quick and dirty tricaster type of setup with something like this, you know, because. You already have the cameras there. You can bring your audio in that way. And on your final stream out, you can do your overlays. So for a really simple yeah. live event, I mean, seriously, a single source and then picking up your audio from every person on a camera, it, that's pretty simple to do. Uh, yeah. I would be interested to know what the audio mix down and sub mix down uh, path is through each of those channels back to the master track, or if it's just like cutting out one and going to the other and cutting out the other, that might be difficult, mm-hmm. but, uh, uh, huh. but still it's, yeah, it's, so it, it's interesting. I haven't found enough information on it, but I can tell by what they're making that I can, I can think of a few people who this would have really helped them out on a, a couple of shoots uh, and this would really change some people's workflows in the way that uh, they get production done every day. All right, uh, last thing on the list here, and um, I'm going to skip the uh, hacking your camera thing, but I'll leave that in the show notes if anybody wants to check that out. It's a really cool uh, putting a CPU cooler on your sensor, your camera, in order to get like high-res uh, space shots. Or scratching off your sensor. Yeah, good luck with that. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, Verivon, one of my favorite camera cage manufacturers, and not a sponsor of the site, by the way, but this is a Verivon cage that I'm actually using on my GH4. I use it all the time. Freaking love that thing. It's having a sale, uh, 30% off of most of their rigs. Uh, also, they've got uh, a bunch of different things on sale right now for um, the master cage for the Sony a7S that has the cheesy obligatory wood attached to it all the way down to the regular <laughs> black finished uh, 5D Mark III and GH4 cages. So swing over to that, check it out. I've got a link to the GH4 cage that I use regularly. Love that guy. One of the best cages available, in my opinion, for the GH4. Uh, really great form factor. Uh, has lots of mounts. The nice handle on the top that I don't have on here right now. As a bunch of audio stuff that I keep uh, permanently attached to that. Great stuff. But uh, otherwise, Verivon, great cage company. As for their other equipment, you know, not so familiar with it. But uh, Devin, you got anything to add to that? Uh, no, I wanted to ask. Um, do you use that rail attachment that goes in the bottom no, corner? No, absolutely not. That is weird and wacky and not my. It's thing. way different. It's so, way different. Do, do you ever use rails? I'm just. I know you're not a rig guy. I know you're really not a shoulder rig guy. But do you ever use rails? You ever pop on a follow focus? I do, uh, mostly on my 5D Mark III with the GH4. Mm-hmm. I find. That for the most part, unless I'm adapting some kind of lens or I'm using something like, man, I just have all the lenses on my desk today, uh, <laughs> like this Voigtlander right here, uh, where it actually works well with a follow focus. Um, mm-hmm. Most of the the electronic controlled lenses available for a GH4 don't really work well with a follow focus. So it's not really right, a thing. Because it's all by wire. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, if I'm using a set of Voigtlanders on my GH4, that's fine. I'll put some rails underneath of it and I actually have an extension plate for I think uh D focus is the uh the follow focus I have in my collection with the the 0.8 millimeter or 0.8 pitch Cinella gears all that crap I have a whole <laughs> set of that for all of my lenses and I use that when I I need to and I use it with the 5D Mark III when I have manual focus lenses but otherwise 
I'm pretty lazy. Like, if I need to pull focus, yeah. I pull focus like this, and I make sure to only mm-hmm. do it one direction in a given shot, so that way I'm not having to worry about, like, getting back to a marker point. If I really am mm-hmm. going to sit through a scene and have to go back and forth and back and forth and pull focus a lot, I will get my follow focus up. I will create correct marks on my marking sheet, and I will go back to each of those points again and again. But really... I don't know. That's just an extra step, especially if you've seen the one that they have on the Veravon site. And actually, I can bring this up so everybody can see what I'm talking about. This is sort of silly because it's just this extra bit of of uh, stuff sticking out the side right here. You can see this. And you can attach yeah. a follow focus to that, but it's a single attachment point. So if either the connection point rolls or the... Uh, follow focus attachment point rolls, you're going to like kind of sweep out from there. So it's not a super solid connection. You're pushing it up against the gear. And then on top of that, for the GH4, you know, that whole thing isn't really, there isn't a ton of applications for that unless you have, you know, 100% adapted lenses. Like say you're shooting on FD lenses the entire time, or you have some weird C-mount lenses that you're using all the time. Anything with a really good, uh, follow focus, uh, turning range that you really do need to use a follow focus on. Uh, otherwise focusing, you know, whatever, it's not really, not really a thing for me. Uh, now on the other hand, I do have a a dedicated set of rails and a, I don't have a map box because I think map boxes are, well, you know, my opinion on map boxes, but yep. Yep. yep, We've all gone through this before, (laughs) but I do throw rails on there when I'm using uh, manual focus lenses. And it's really great with like, I have some old primes. Uh, I, for example, I'll throw rails on my Sony a seven S when I'm shooting with the 55 millimeter F one, two FD lens from Canon's old collection. That's a beautiful sort of has its own feel lens and it works great with a follow focus system and that's the type of lens i would want to use for that the voigtlanders are another example these are great they have good throw uh they work well with a follow focus and you know if i had a set of cinema primes from you know rokinon or something like that that had the gears built in that would probably also be handy but again that's not a lens i would want to stick on my gh4 just because they're freaking huge that's a lens you'd want to use for your canon 5d mark iii so i don't find myself using rails almost Hmm at all on the gh4 period but i do use rails on the 5d mark iii and to a lesser extent the sony a7s actually i would reverse that i'd say nowadays i use more rails on my a7s simply because i'm adapting more lenses i don't have any native sony glass so uh, for what it's worth that's where i'm at devin what about you i know you have your giant lunchbox rig yeah and uh, a few <laughs> other ones are you constantly sticking a follow focus on your rigs to shoot um you know what uh most of the time i'm not if it's it's strange if it's a shoulder rig i actually don't follow uh use a follow focus i usually just grab the the lens by itself because i'm usually swapping a few too um it, it's it's this weird situation where i'm usually using a shoulder rig when I'm jumping around and doing a lot of different kinds of shots and different kinds of things where, uh, and in that situation, I'm switching lenses so often, I don't really want to bother with the follow focus and the camera's kind of already stable and where I need it to be. So it's very easy for me to grab it and focus it. Uh, but there's a few cases where I know I'm going to run around without a shoulder rig and I want the package to be smaller in my hand. And in that case, I'll throw on rails and I'll throw in a follow focus because that follow focus will become my second point of grip on the camera so it allows me to grip and focus at the same time um and i kind of like the feel of that i think it's a bit more um 
for me personally, it, it makes the camera more stable for me and easier to use. Because uh, holding in my hand and wrapping my hand around it to twist the lens, uh, for some reason that, that gets awkward for me uh, in the kind of shooting positions I usually end up finding myself. So it's one of those where, yeah, if if I'm not running a shoulder rig, I usually have a follow focus on it. If I am running a shoulder rig, like I know where the camera's going to be and I can hold the entire thing with one hand very stable. And so I'll just use my other hand to wrap around the camera. So each to their own. I mean, and there's been times too where I've gone out shooting and uh, I have a map box and I've had to use it. Because uh, one time I was shooting with a Rokinon 8mm, which you know you can't attach any filters to. Yeah. Um, and I was shooting raw on the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema camera uh, out at noon, which, um, you know, you can't adjust the ISO down or anything like that or the ASA on a black <laughs> when you're shooting raw. It's just, it's 800. It's the native of the sensor, 400. Yep. It's native of the sensor. So in that case, and I couldn't get, you know, uh, my filters on it because it's a big bulbous lens or whatever, the 8 millimeter, 3.5 or whatever it is. So in that case, yeah, there's times where I use my map box. Sometimes I get shadowing issues too, and I wish I would bring my map box. I usually just end up using my hand, <laughs> which sounds weird. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's one of those where it, it works. And I, I can see now why so many people, so many photographers really like that gooseneck flap, like French flag thing that they've got that they attach to their Yeah, cold if you don't shield. like lens flare, that thing's very handy. Well, it, or, or if you like contrast too, dude. It's more, it's... A yeah, lot of the time you need, it's not necessarily net lens. Don't flare, shoot into you, the sun. I mean, if you've got no, if you've got small spectaculars and stuff like that, lens flare is fine, and it's it's a pretty thing and everything else. If you're shooting out with the sun, and even like today, I was shooting uh, this morning. I was shooting wedding dresses with um, an 85 millimeter Rokinon on the GH3, and I was just taking photos. Uh, but even with the giant long lens hood that comes with the Rokinon 80 millimeter. Uh, the, the sun was still, I mean, I'm way up in the Northern hemisphere, like DJ, the sun is still kind of low in the sky. It's not high, high noon. And so because it's a bit lower, it just, it hits that angle just right. And even though I got a big lens hood on it, I'm still finding myself trying to cover it up to increase the contrast. Uh, cause it ends up just washing over and, uh, bleaching the entire photo basically. Hmm. Yeah, you know, that hasn't been enough of an issue for me to really yeah. worry about, but I shoot indoors a lot, and when I do shoot outdoors, it's usually uh, in the wee hours of the morning or the uh, <laughs> towards dusk time, because those are the sweet times to shoot outside. I do have one other thing, and I did see this on set the other day, and it's it kind of caught me off guard. I laughed out loud when I saw it, and then I was like, wait a minute, what's this about? And uh, if you just really need to pull focus fast, they're really cheesy, uh, but they're fun, and they're like 20 bucks. It's just a little strap-on uh, uh, stick, basically, for your focus ring on your lens and a marker board that goes behind it. $25 gets you this. You mark the spots that you're trying to get back to. Obviously, this 28 to 135 lens that they're demonstrating here is probably <laughs> not going to have repeable focus uh, on it. No. So that may be a waste of your $25 they're, if that's what yeah, you're shooting they're, with. Yeah, they're trying, they're trying to make it easier to use. I kind of remember, I want to say this was about... Uh man, uh, f- six years ago, this this was the thing to have um, in terms of cheap follow focus because back then there wasn't a $100 follow focus units. So uh, people, now this has kind of grown up a bit and become like its own actual product, but I remember it was a thing to go grab, I forget what it was. It was like a jar opener or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it's this guy and right people... here. So this is the professional version of it. Um, but yeah, it's basically like you, it was sold for elderly ladies and you used it in order to 
basically attached to the top of a jar or lid that mm-hmm. you couldn't open, and then you would squeeze down on it and then use that as like leverage point. And, and people yeah. would actually attach that to their camera lens. You could see frequently bought together that yep. spider that spider rig that both me and you had at one point, and the uh, and some other DSLR gear. Uh, so you could tell this this company's make this company's in the DSLR market. They didn't even know it. That fifty dollar follow focus. I've never used one, but I've always wanted one because that looks really cost effective. They've got uh, two kind of versions: one where it gears up into the lens like that, and another one where it uses um, like a rubber band or something like that. It uses some kind of combination. Yeah. Uh, I always thought that was really interesting. Obviously, it's not as flexible as having one that you spin forward because uh, that one eventually the camera or the rails will get into the way. It depends on how much play you have in your focus. Yeah. Um, which I think for most most photography glass, you won't have that problem using something like that. But if you have cinema glass, which tends to be the kind of glass that's geared, uh, that thing might be a problem because those things usually almost do a full rotation. So, Yeah, and I didn't find myself using my defocus... Uh, follow focus system. I think I have version three or version four and I've had it forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, love it to death. And it's got an extender that'll go up past a battery grip and so on. Uh, really good stuff. Uh, but I just don't use it that much. And yeah. I do, you know, I do see the point of having to follow focus. I understand that there are probably a lot more professional people than myself that use them continuously. It's just, I don't really have time to sit there and pull focus on a regular basis. And in some cases, I've even gotten to the point where I just program in focus points that are repeatable, hit the button and it goes mm-hmm. to one, hit the button, it goes to the other. And I don't worry about it. And I, I sure. find myself doing that in, in Magic Lantern more often than I do pulling focus because, look, I just need to transition between these two points, and I need to transition right. at such a speed, and that's it. And I can figure that out. Okay, you know, click, bam, done. Click again, done, sweet. Now yep. on to the next shot. Don't have to worry about it. And, you know, it used to be that when we first got shallowed up the field, everybody was like, oh, man, we got to use it on everything and really pull focus all the time and stuff. But now it's almost yeah. become passe to continually, like it's the mark of a new DSLR shooter to go out mm-hmm. and you see them like, oh, every shot is shallow depth of field. Every single shot is pulling focus from one item to another. Every single shot is the entire background in Boca. I mean, it looks yeah. good. Don't get me wrong, but you got to do other no, things that's, too. No, no. And, and that's a good point. Like today when I was shooting um, uh, the wedding dresses, it's one of those where uh, you need to, if so many people are like shallow depth of field, they feel like it builds depth. And most of the time, they're right. It's understandable why they think that. Um, so in one situation, I've got, you know, the the subject a few feet away from a tree. And, yeah, I slam it all the way open at, you know, T1.5. Um, and, you know, we get this nice kind of shallow depth of field with, uh, you know, the tree being slightly out of focus. Now we went over to an open field. So it's just like this openness and this sky and, like, trees along the side and a little bit of this valley yeah. going on. And if I do T1.5, the background just becomes the, um, a matte painting. It just be it, it, it's, gets super flat, and you don't see any depth uh, because your brain can't perceive that. It just looks like a blur of colors, like someone just pulled a backdrop behind your subject. And so you're actually losing a sense of depth in that photo, and you're losing the grandeur and everything else. So when I got to that photo, I stopped it up to, I think, about T12 or something like that. It's still, I wanted it out of focus. I wanted to separate my subject, but I wanted to show how deep the valley was and how far away the trees were and everything else. And you lose a sense of distance and of size when you just do, you know, 
the, is the shallowest thing that you can do. So, um, but hey, everyone learns. I mean, that's where everyone starts. We all grabbed our DSLRs the first day we got them, and we shot like that for weeks on end uh, before you know we started to have different tastes and stuff like that. So, and it's understandable because every cell phone everyone's used, every video camera everyone's used, and everything else has never been capable of that. So as soon as you get that new toy, that's exactly what you want to do with it is what you've never been able to do. It's the slider syndrome, man. As soon as someone gets a slider, oh, yeah. like it's they the just slider use sliders thing, yeah. in every single shot. <laughs> you got to think about what you're trying to imply with your shot. You got to kind of put it together and you got to understand that mm-hmm. not everything needs to be out of focus. And actually one of the things that I love about the A7S is in low light, I can still stop down to F4 or F5.6 and mm-hmm. get special effects that I'm shooting in a darker setting in focus so that you can see the gore dripping out of something or you can see the jaw being ripped off. And, and this is getting a little too gruesome, but you know, <laughs> at night like, you're allowed to. Yeah, exactly. Happy Halloween. I actually, I grabbed this Halloween hat to wear for the show, but then I remembered <laughs> I wear headphones, so not a thing, <laughs> not a thing at all. All right, on that note, we've gone long enough, guys. Thanks for oh, watching. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Devin, where can people find you, man? Uh, you can find me at Twitter, at DevoCut, um, where, where you can talk to me and ask me questions, and I'll pretend like I know something. on that note guys thanks for listening and watching to another exciting episode of dslr film new podcast this was episode 62 we are still strong and moving forward so send your comments questions complaints and concerns to us we would love to hear them listen to them and not listen to them if they're in the complaint format but hey guys it's great interacting with you make sure you like subscribe do all those things that you're supposed to do with online content and we'll see you next time on another episode of the podcast talk to you next time (laughs) 